0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Victoria Malko, author of The Ukrainian Intelligentsia and Genocide, The Struggle for History, Language and Culture in the 1920s and 1930s, published by Langsington Books in 2021. Victoria Malko is lecturer of American history at Fresno State University with teaching interest in modern Europe, U.S. history, women's history, and world history. Also, Dr. Malko is founding coordinator of Holodomor studies program. She has been serving on editorial board of American history and politics peer-reviewed journal and advisory board of National Holodomor Genocide Museum in Kiev. Hello, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today, and of course, congratulations on your publication.
2: Hello, Natalia, thank you very much, and thank you for this opportunity to um, talk about my book,
1: Yes, of course. But uh, I feel like congratulations remarks uh, attained some new meaning after February 24th when the Russian Federation attacked um, Ukraine. And I do believe that our conversation is quite pertinent today to the present moment, uh, because many point out that the current war is some sort of continuation of what Russia has been doing for not just decades, but century. Uh, On the one hand, uh, the idea was to convince the world that Ukrainians and Russians are, quote-unquote, one people, uh, and on the other hand, to convince the Ukrainians that they do not exist. So would you comment a little bit on this connection between the Holodomor and the present moment?
2: Uh, thank you, Natalia. Uh, this is a very insightful uh, comment, and um, indeed, the Holodomor is the most central um, uh, narrative issue that um, Ukraine um, had um, to um, um, to analyze, to go through, to understand that the current Russian uh, war is essentially the continuation of that ongoing uh, Russian genocide, which means Russification. The denial that Ukraine has the right to exist, that Ukraine has its own history, uh, that Ukraine has its own uh, language, um, and um, the denial of the as genocide um, is at the root of this uh, current um, violence. Um, and so, to prevent this violence, Russia has to come to terms uh, with uh, acknowledging um, uh, these uh, historical um, injustice. Uh, all five acts of genocide, in accordance with, the, uh, with Article 2 of the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, do apply uh, to the case of the Holodomor. This has been established by our legal scholars, uh, including Volodymyr ravasilenko um, Miroslav Antonovich, um, and all of these five um, apply to the current um, war in Ukraine, genocidal violence. Uh, Timothy Snyder mentioned it, um, um, Professor I um, Sanders, um, the British scholar. Uh, so people are killed uh, just because they are Ukrainian. Um, conditions, uh, the, the mental harm, the bodily harm um, is caused uh, to the victims. Uh, it was caused in the 1930s, um, and um, and currently my father is the victim um, of this violence. Uh, he escaped from Irpin, and he still suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, and so are uh, the women, the children uh, in the besieged Mariupol. The conditions of life incompatible. Actually, the conditions uh, created uh, during the Holodomor, the artificial uh, famine, the um, you know the the destruction, the deportations, the blacklisting, uh, the confiscations of grain and everything edible, uh, passport regime, ban on travel. Um, So all of these created uh, impossible conditions for people to survive. The same thing we witness now when humanitarian corridors are not allowed, um, when uh, even the United Nations Red Cross, uh, the international organizations are trying to um, at least negotiate um, um, the way for the people to escape. Uh, 10 million people have been um, already um, Displaced, internally displaced, and probably half of those um, went to um, Poland, um, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, um, as far as Italy, even so, has Britain and the United States. So, in the 1930s, of course, uh, the um, the entire public was essentially a ghetto where people could not escape. Um, And so um, probably one third of the population perished at that time. Um, And again, we see that uh, many people die of hunger. So we call it the holodomor, but it was much more larger. It was not just uh, the famine, the artificial conditions of famine. This was a genocidal um, tactic to force people to surrender, to subjugate. Uh, And so, for example, my father, without uh, food for one week, um, he he suffered. Uh, He said he had to relearn, actually, how to re-feed himself. And so then I imagine, okay, that's how people felt then, you know, if one week, and 60 days uh, in the besieged Mariupol, when people are cooking probably one can of food and distributing it and trying to, um, you know, uh, use a a bit of it um, just to survive or when um, famous artists uh, died because of the lack of nutrition, lack of food. So we sort of um, now, begin to understand how it felt like in the 1930s Um, for the generation of our parents, uh, our grandparents, uh, they were traumatized by those experiences. Uh, And my father, he later remembered the famine of 1946, for example, um, when um, his mother walked to Western Ukraine to procure food. And so again, one week without food, and now in his 80s, relieving all that childhood traumas. So the Ukrainian people, um, I, I would call them like the Christ nation. They carry this cross of uh, living and having the neighbor that for centuries, um, since you know the 12th century, has been trying to subjugate the Ukrainians. Um, and at the same time, they have um, very little understanding by the rest of the world of their own history. And so it appears like, you know, the war uh, out of a sudden um, for the NATO expansion. And they try to explain no, this is not just about NATO. Uh, this has uh, deeper historical, cultural uh, roots the eradication of uh, the Ukrainian nation, the Russification. Um, something that um, clearly meets the uh, criteria of um, genocide. And just to mention two more, um, preventing births within the group. Uh, it happened then. Uh, the birth rate dropped significantly. Uh, we know especially for women of, um, you know, the childbearing age in 1932 uh, 1933, sometimes even there is no statistics to tell us how drastically uh, that uh, birth rate dropped. But just indirectly, uh, we know that one-third of the population uh, perished. Um, and then, currently, we observe the same thing. Uh, maternity hospitals um, are bombed, or shelled indiscriminately. Um, so these are not the headquarters of any um, military. Um, this is a visible eradication of um, and depriving the nation of its future. Um, and another um, topic of rape as a weapon of war. Uh, again, uh, unfortunately, there is no uh, international court to prosecute such crimes. Uh, and we know that it happened in Bosnia, it happened in Rwanda, and we know in Kiev, north of Kiev, 25 women were held in, in a jail. Uh, and raped systematically, children were raped. So um, this is um, these are genocidal acts and they have to be prosecuted. Mm. And finally, the transfer of children. Um, in the 1930s, uh, children, um, you know where did they come? Uh, the um, homeless children? Uh, because their parents were uh, exiled, arrested, executed, and so the whole generation of these children um, of uh, well-to-do uh, Ukrainian farmers ended up on the streets. Um, and many of them then were collected, herded to children's homes or communes. Um, and the very famous commune uh, you know, headed by Anton Makarenko, a kind of a russified Ukrainian. Um, and it was under the um, you know, watchful eyes of the GPU. And so they were educated in Russian. Um, Names of these children were changed. Um, Even uh, Skripnik's son, after Skripnik uh, committed suicide, and Skripnik was um, commissar of education, Uh, one of the most sort of nationalist communists, um, uh, who, although... Supported Stalin in his, um, you know, fight with the opposition. Um, the most capable Ukrainian who attended most of the communist, uh, you know, conferences and forums, and um, who actually brought uh, Ukrainization and, um, you know, brought many Western Ukrainians um, to um, revise um, and essentially issue uh, the new Ukrainian orthography. And um, although he was a good communist, uh, all the, you know, evils of ukrainization were blamed on him, um, you know, and he just, he thought he could combine communist and nationalist ideologies, and obviously this clash of um, two ideologies led to eventual um, crisis, and, you um, uh, he committed suicide. His young wife um, was run over by, by a truck. Uh, we know how KGB or GIPO uh, in those days could stage such incidents. And so his young son uh, then became an orphan. And of course they changed his name because it was uh, like too, too obvious. Um, and um, many of the names were nicknames. Um, or sometimes even listed as nevidomy. I saw one of the documents, um, Professor Trehichuk showed me, he found in the archives, Vanya Nevidomy. Uh, and it was a state-run orphanage named after Petrovsky. Mm. Um, so how do you, how can you explain uh, when the Soviet leaders tell the children our future, um, and at the same time, the reality was quite the opposite. So these children uh, died, sometimes um, is unknown. Uh, sometimes it was changed names, like lesya Ukrainka um, or Bernard Shaw, for example, when he visited the Soviet Union. Um, so, And currently we see that children are also deported. So this is clearly a violation of the convention, and um, these children, uh, sometimes from um, orphanages, uh, perhaps from hospitals, um, first I saw reports of tens of thousands, but now even the Russian sources tell us about of, uh, a hundred thousand of nearly million of deported Ukrainians are somewhere in Russia and how do we um, you know get them back? So Deportations. Um, this is definitely the transfer of children from one national group uh, to another, um, re-educating them in Russian um, and forcing them to forget their language, their history, um, their families. Um, so that that is the um, you know the Russification. That um, that is at the very core of uh, this genocidal policy. And, of course, in the 1930s, it was disguised as, you know, a struggle with Ukrainian national, you know, nationalists or, or uh, nationalists or bourgeois nationalists. Um, and so now they call them Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, they called uh, historians even um Fascist historians. Of course, it was 1930s, and in 1934, um, even Hershevsky and Hermize, um they were called uh, Ukrainian fascists. And I, I saw this, and in, in one of the um, uh, documents in in the regional archives, um, um, published later, probably in Yuri um or in in some other. Um, it's was a published source, not that I found it. I only worked in, in the Central Archives. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to travel to regional archives. But um, the Institute for the Study of uh, the Holodomor in Kyiv, Ukraine, affiliated with the National holodomor Genocide Museum, uh, has researchers who travel to Ukrainian regional archives and bring all those documents, compile them, Uh, analyze um to expand our understanding of uh, what actually transpired um in in regions in ukraine in the 1930s
1: uh thank you thank you victoria thank you for enumerating these parallels between the present moment and the 1930s uh and i do hope um uh these parallels will be further discussed and um um studied uh, in a detailed uh, way and i hope that um the um this discussion will somehow shed some light uh on how the current war Became possible, and how it beca- and how the atrocities which are committed by Russian troops uh, today in Ukraine also became possible. Um, you also started talking a little bit about the origins of the Holodomor, and that's where I would like to take our conversation further at this moment. Uh, so your book discusses in detail uh, the origins of the Holodomor, uh, which you. Uh, Anglophone audiences is is known as the Great Famine of 1932 1933 Um, and uh, you discuss the origins in connection with a systematic and um, systemic policy of the Soviet Union that was specifically um, targeted not only against the Ukrainian farmers who resisted the um, collectivization but also against the Ukrainian intelligentsia uh, which you call the soul of the nation. Uh, One of the main Arguments of your book is that the communist regime led by Stalin undertook well calculated uh, uh, measures to eliminate the intelligentsia in Ukraine in order to minimize its national aspirations, which started to intensively develop again in Ukraine in the 1920s, uh, partially as a result of Ukrainization, which you already mentioned to some extent. So, would you briefly reconstruct this trajectory? that takes us from the formation of the USSR to the Holodomor, and why the intelligentsia was given so much attention while these developments were taking place?
2: Oh, this is a huge question. (laughs) And um, I think there are two um, approaches um, to the analysis of the uh, causes of the Holodomor. Um, and if we start with the definition and the law of um, um, on, on the Holodomor, it is called uh, the Holodomor of 1932-33. And so this is a narrow uh, interpretation of uh, the Holodomor. Um, and it is um, the legal definition. And it is the one that meets the definition of genocide. Um, I look at it uh, in a broader, um, kind of as a broad concept. Uh, and these two are not contradictory. Mm-hmm. So, Miroslava um, Antonovich uh, states in her research um, that uh, both narrow and broad uh, definitions apply to the case of the Holodomor. And why I approach it from the broader perspective because that is um, the conceptualization uh, that was presented by Lemkin himself. Uh, And we didn't know about it until 2008 when it was published. Um, How ironic. Uh, He presented this speech in 1953. And so there were many, there were thousands of Ukrainians, and I'm sure there were scholars um, like... um, Robert Conquest, who mentioned uh, genocide, he equivocated on it a bit, but he didn't provide any citation uh, to Lemkin and his speech in New York in 1953 on September 20th, Um, and so that was puzzling, Uh, and even... If we read reports about Lemkin's speech, we still do not get it from the reports by journalists that he actually presented the entire concept of his four-pronged attack in this, uh, what he called, Soviet genocide. Um, And thanks to Roman Serbin, professor of history from the University of Montreal, in 2010 he wrote uh, an article where he tried to grapple and tried to understand how do we transition from this concept of just great famine to actually understand what was uh, what were the acts of genocide that were committed um, because if we just look at collectivization and industrialization, this is not the the main cause uh, We know that totalitarian regimes and even democracies they do rely on um, you know strong economies centralized economies. Um, And uh, they do have uh, the strong military-industrial complex. So these are not the distinguishing characteristics. What distinguishes totalitarian regimes is one-party system and ideology, uh, the system of terror, psychological terror, physical terror, and mass um, propaganda, control of the media, So we need to focus on those. And so those uh, who conceptualize Holodomor as uh, famine look at the causes, uh, you know, look at collectivization, industrialization. Uh, But the Soviet Union, like, um, you know, the United States and like other, you know, democracies at that time also needed to survive economically. So I argue along with, um, um, you know, other scholars that economic uh, reasons and causes were not the main ones. We need to look at the nationality policy um, that uh, behind this veneer of uh, Marxist internationalism was essentially Russian chauvinism, um, denationalization of all the other um, national groups, and especially um, Ukrainians, who were the largest of all the minority groups in Uh, the former uh, Russian Empire, and uh, later the the Soviet um, Empire that Lenin and later Stalin were building. And so when I looked at Lemkin's conceptualization, um, it it took me several kind of um, presentations, and probably by May 2018, when I presented my talk at the Association for the Study of Nationalities, on the eve of that presentation i reread again lemkin's four a four page essay and it dawned upon me that he truly explained that it is not a famine or the famine it is genocide the Russification, and so and he clearly stated so the first prong of the attack was actually aimed at intelligentsia Mm. because they were the brain of the nation And he pointed out that it all started in the 1920s, immediately when the Bolsheviks, um, you know, on the third attempt, uh, took over Ukraine. Because, as Lenin said, uh, we cannot lose Ukraine. Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Russian Empire, and so Bolsheviks needed bread to feed their proletariat, right? Because they didn't produce, right? Um, So proletariat in uh, Petrograd in Moscow. Um, and so they recognized the Ukrainian National Republic, right, you remember, in December of 2017. Um, and then in that same ultimatum, they threatened the Ukrainian National Republic um, and they moved their forces, so the Red Army marched into Ukraine, so on the third attempt. And if you read Lenin's thesis on the Russian Communist Party's policy toward Ukraine, those theses were drafted in um, November of 1919. And so there are probably nine items there. And so number one, that Ukraine for now should be kept uh, kind of as a, a, a republic, but then eventually uh, submerged by Russian republic. So. And then uh, special uh, care given to the nationalist sentiments in ukraine um and what he meant by that uh studying the Ukrainian language, so as Peter later said, so that the brothers who um, confiscate all our uh, riches and treasures uh, do not look like they are conquerors um, but that they are our own brothers uh, quote unquote and so it was very instrumental. So the learning, the the requirement to learn Ukrainian, for the officials who were sent to Ukraine, was just uh, instrumental. Um, it was not, uh, as it was uh, interpreted, uh, the way to give Ukrainians a sort of a sense of their national um, kind of, um, you know. Uh, identity or or anything else it was very instrumental and we know that many of the russian uh, officials uh, who were in charge of ukraine including the military and all the administrative uh, offices and soviets they didn't bother even to learn ukraine and we know this um, although there were tests that required the study of the language um, they found a way to um bypass, evade, and essentially they didn't bother uh, to study Ukrainian. Uh, Other items on that agenda were to disarm Ukraine. And we see this quite clearly now, and Stalin did. He followed that very same uh, policy. So the Red Terror of 1917 to 1921 essentially swept Ukraine, all the countryside, all the weapons, um, you know, Guns, um, sabers, um, you know, anything. Everything was confiscated. Um, and I think Petro wrote about this in his memoirs. Um, and um, I think Dmitro Solovey, he even presented statistics on exactly how many sabers and um, pistols and um, whatnot, all the firearms, um, uh, even cannons, whatnot. So everything was confiscated. Uh, and then Stalin did the same when they registered um, the firearms um, uh, and in 1926, 1928, 29, before they implemented this special operation. Um, That was the Holodomor of 1932 that started in November. And so that was the policy that was very systematically followed to disarm um, Ukraine. Something that we hear now, Putin's call to demilitarize Ukraine, right? Uh, Calling special operation. Indeed, the Holodomor was a special operation because it was planned by the security services, by the GPU with the support of the military they always had their own military detachments the security services uh, plus of course he could use the red army um so this is the pattern of this same uh, imperial policy uh, beginning from lenin to stalin to putin and so lenin of course did not create ukraine as putin claims um but uh, he just couldn't let it go because of its riches. And he always uh, called for more bread and more bread and more bread from Ukraine. Um, and as Schlichter reported, that every grain uh, of, uh, that wheat collected in Ukraine was soaked in blood. Um, so I read his article. Uh, and um, so going on down the list on Lenin's thesis, um, Ukrainian intelligentsia had to be co-opted. And he singled out Spilka, a teacher's union, um, and particularly wrote that it has to be just liquidated. And so one year later, in 1920, uh, it was liquidated. So there was no more uh, Ukrainian teacher's union. It became known as Robos, which is something like an equivalent of uh, educational employees' union. slash NBN50 to get 50% off. And that was uh, under total Russian uh, Communist Party control. Um, So it was not an independent trade union by by no means. Um, And of course, recruiting half of the population into Soviets, that is exactly the genocidal policy, because you recruit the local population to implement uh, your colonial policy, so all these people um, later participated in grain requisitions campaigns, in all the propaganda campaigns, in collectivization campaigns. Um, we know the numbers range like in 30% or, or something. But Lenin stated it very clearly, recruit half of the population into local Soviets. That's it. That's the language. Um, and so that's what Putin is doing. He is trying to find local collaborators, uh, useful assets um, among the local population who would collaborate with the regime. And again, he targets the leaders, right, the mayors, um, and in, in uh, Militopol, um, even the teachers. So I read one of the reports uh, recently that um, uh, in in April first days of April, uh, the authorities, the Russian um, um, authorities, forced all the directors of schools uh, to um, switch to Russian and offer programs in Russian. And, of course, all the teachers, all the directors refused. They signed letters um, of resignation. Um, And the representative of the uh, opposition, which is the party of the opposition, and they, of course, found uh, the person willing to take upon the role of a temporary kind of authority. Uh, She threatened the teachers. Uh, She said that they will not receive humanitarian aid. And worst of all, they went uh, house to house, uh, knocked on the doors, and all of these directors were herded on the bus, shipped 30 kilometers outside melitopol and then let go home on foot so um, this is the kind of the the, the incarnation of these uh russian policies of uh instilling their own language their own culture just switching to their own education um and so and again, we see that members of the intelligentsia are the first targets of their policy because they are the brain of the nation. And of course, by then, second target group were the clergy uh, of the Ukrainian um, Orthodox Church, which uh, was independent. And now we, we call them um, autocephalous. Um, it has its own rights. Um sort of govern itself and being independent from the Moscow patriarchy. Um, all the clergy uh, that in 1921 had um, uh, their um, church council in St. Sophia in Kiev, most of them by 1930s were either arrested uh, or um, exiled, uh, executed. Uh, Lutkiewski also died uh, somewhere outside Kiev Uh, Leontovich was murdered, Um, Stetsenko, Kirill Stetsenko, um, who wrote some of the, um, um, probably the best uh, uh, national uh, liturgical works. Uh, Those were purged um, after um, he died of cholera, I believe, or typhus. Uh, But uh, the Gipu people were after him. Um, so he was hiding, uh, contracted typhus, and then uh, died at the age of 41. Um, he is the one who wrote the Panahida, uh, the Ukrainian Requiem, uh, and the best liturgical works that we did not um, even know about. Uh, and all his collected works were published only in 2013. Um, so such such a huge, colossal um, cultural loss. Um So to generations of Ukrainians. Um, Again, the church was liquidated, right? So that's the second group. Um, And then the sons and daughters of the clergy uh, were just uh, deprived of even higher education. Um, And so they were outside the law. The the entire kind of social strata were declared uh, parasites. Essentially. And we know that in Ukraine, uh, most of the teachers were the sons and daughters of the clergy. They were um, you know, um, literate, uh, they could sing, uh, they knew the Ukrainian language, so that was the soul of the nation, essentially, the spirit of the nation. And then the third prong of the attack was uh, against the Ukrainian independent Farmers. I do not call them peasants because that's a medieval concept uh, and although it is translated as such but it does not represent the modern day uh, kind of entrepreneurial uh, spirit of Ukrainian uh, homesteads that uh, were selling grain on international markets uh, before the revolution. And Lenin, of course, just destroyed the economy along with that tradition of independent farming. Um, And so that is where the difference is between the narrow and the broad definition of the Holodomor as genocide. Um, So it seemed like most of the Ukrainians were farmers, as they argue, or the farmers were mostly Ukrainians. Um, And so, yes. In the 1930s 80% probably of the world population were living in rural areas um, but that doesn't mean that there were no intelligentsia in Ukraine at that time they were a tiny probably percentage um, but they were um, eliminated in proportionally speaking in larger numbers than even the farming population because if we s- compare what um, James Mace wrote, that the Ukrainian intelligentsia virtually were wiped out. So, And I saw some of the percentages, like 70% or 80% of Western Ukrainian intelligentsia. And if we compare to the uh, losses, relative losses, among the farming populations, um, even if we say 5 million out of 25 million um Uh, And 10 million probably is more um, reasonable to assume counting, you know, people that were not only working on the land, but also the clergy, the intelligentsia. Um, And so that only gives us like 25 to 30 percent of the farming population. And so you compare 70 percent to 30 percent then the losses among the intelligentsia were much more significant. Although um, numerically, they were probably not as, um, you know, not in millions, but probably in tens of thousands. Um, and even to that point, how many members of the intelligentsia actually um, were the victims of the Holocaust? Um, The I found out that um, the Kipu even did not uh, tally um all these numbers um so for example nikolev uh he studied like 27 1928 1929 1930 31 32 33 so he found like for 1930 especially when uh all these um the 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 countryside was um inflamed with the uprisings about a million people like 4000 uprisings um At that time, there's just no completely. The statistics is just uh, sanitized uh, from their data. Um, So in 29, we know that there was a very large number of arrested um, members of intelligentsia. Uh, And then 32, 33, again, we see another gap in numbers. Um, And they even didn't count teachers as a separate category. I only saw probably for 19... um, Two, for just for one year out of these, 27, 28, 29, um, only one year that they counted teachers as a separate category and probably a few hundred, like 800 or something. So overall, when I looked um, at these categories, and Nikolev concluded that uh, if we look at 14 different social categories, the intelligentsia were on the top. They were the first. So clearly during the Holodomor, the intelligentsia were targeted the most, uh, so the repressions, arrests, um, executions. Um, in terms of the numbers, um, I don't know, I, I saw 30,000 arrested in one year alone uh, following the SVU trial. Um, but then when I uh, computed Nikolov's numbers, that gave me 30,000 as well, so I'm not sure... Uh, where um, um, historians take their numbers. Um, Nikolev probably was more conservative because he just followed the GPU documents. uh, And Yurisha Paval, he probably uh, wrote it. uh, He's a very good storyteller, so probably he just used the combined number for emphasis. Um, But I found also... Uh, that we can estimate the number of teachers um, that uh, disappeared kind of from the ranks. Uh, when we look at the statistical tables, and those fortunately were published in 1935, so we need to give credit to Alexander Satkin, uh, who was later, of course, executed for allegedly quote-unquote falsifying statistics because he didn't show up that there were enough Ukrainians. So. He was the one who actually alerted the authorities in 1935 that there is a strange demographic, uh, 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 you know, phenomenon going on, that there are lots of losses among the Ukrainian population. And so two years later, you know, he was executed um, because instead of 35 million, there were probably 28 or 29 million Ukrainians. So there was a gap of 7.1 million. And that's um, I think uh, Basil marochko He studied um, the, um, the 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 protocol of the um, interrogation, uh, and that's uh, the number that is just stated on paper. So that's a historical document. It's not a demographic estimate or anything like that. So sometimes it is criticized because this is just um, you know 35 minus uh, 20 29 million. Um, So demographers disagree with that number, Uh, but nevertheless, that is what Asadkin and other demographers also um, projected. That was a projected kind of uh, number that Ukraine didn't reach, obviously, because of 1932-33. And so in that, um, uh, that's kind of the economic handbook that presented uh, the developments in the Republic in all uh, spheres of uh, economic activity, including education, because uh, number one, primary education was compulsory. And so all the directors of schools were required to submit their um, monthly reports about um, the enrollments. And so that, um, you know and demographers ironically they have that document because Natalia Levchuk when I met with her at that conferences and conference that's one of the advantages of actually going uh, to these conferences because you have a chance to to speak even to your adversaries the people with whom you disagree uh, but they share the resources so mm-hmm. And because it's a published source and it is not a um, statistical source, although those are statistical tables, they have never used those. They just, demographers use only census, census statistics period. And they know that it exists. She actually sent this PDF document to me and they studied these tables. This is fascinating. It is so detailed for all the regions, um, um district levels. And so I was able to actually figure out, um, and from various tables, there is in particular one uh, students, schools, and teachers. And from 1914 to 1917, all the way to 1935, year by year. And when I looked just at the primary schools, if you look at the overall, the impression is oh, yeah, the growth and the numbers for the students and teachers and schools. But if you look very carefully and just focus on the primary schools, and we know that those were, number one, obligatory, uh, all children were required. And number two, the highest percentage of deaths occurred among the children of primary schools because of their age. And so if we just focus on these primary schools, we see very clearly that there is a sharp drop uh, that is unaccounted for, and even the compilers, they just list very honestly all these numbers, but they do not provide any explanation of what happens. Um, they just say, well, perhaps because of the restructuring of the schools or something. But we know that uh, if there were six schools, for example, like in Radomis, um, that the city that I focused on, um, out of six schools in 1927 by 1934 only two schools remained school number one named after Taras shevchenko and school number two named after lenin kind of match one to one there is communist here is nationalist right tradition and so we know that the number of schools dropped so restructuring of schools was not obviously the the reason of why the number of students dropped and i also know it is that if we look at 1914 and then look at this number in 1934, and I provide this table in my book, the only table that the editor allowed. <laughs> he vetoed all the other tables. He said, readers are not interested in tables. They cannot interpret them. Just minimize it. You know, He allowed me a certain minimum number of photographs and uh, tables. So in that table, it clearly shows that the number, 20 years of Soviet rule, resulted in the Eradication of the students and teachers and schools. So there were less schools in Ukraine if we compare in before the revolution. So these are the consequences mm-hmm. of the 20 years of Soviet rule of the Russian mm-hmm. uh, occupation of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So um, that is, um, you know, th- these were kind of very um, insightful um, findings that um, you know I came up with after you know, working and writing this, um, mm-hmm.
1: this book. Uh, well, thank you, Victoria, for this um, conversation. And again, congratulations on your book. And thank you for advancing the Holodomor studies uh, and for drawing attention to the Holodomor on the international level, because I still believe that the Holodomor, unfortunately, is quite invisible on the global mental and memory map at this moment. And we need to talk more about it, about it. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Natalia. Thank you for this opportunity.
1: Uh, Today I spoke with Victoria Malko, author of The Ukrainian Intelligentsia and Genocide, The Struggle for History, Language and Culture in the 1920s and 1930s, published by Lexington Books in 2021. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.